Well, here we are. Deep Root Cemetery. You know, where ideas tend to sit here and fester for all eternity. Eventually just being forgotten and abandoned. Anyway, hi everybody, it's Josh from This American Pinball. So I guess I owe you an explanation of why I'm here. Okay, so I've, I've been so busy with Silverball stories that I didn't have time to write anything for This American Pinball. So, I'm out here at this abandoned cemetery, looking for this crypt, which is rumored to have the script for an episode. Here we go. T-A-P. Okay. Let's look inside. Man, it's certainly been a long time since anyone's been in here. Well, so I don't get lambasted on Pinside for not jumping right into the episode. I may as well tell you that we're going to have a special guest tonight. And his name is... What was that? Also, what I'd really like to talk about is some... Oh, man. I gotta find this thing and get the hell out of here. Here it is. It's an old book. But I, I can't understand the writing. Wait, what does this say? Aton Ohi Kanwia. Hey everybody, Josh here, and we've got a pretty good show ahead for you. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's been a year uh, since we started this. You know, the first episode was released on Halloween uh, last year, and so here we are a little bit early, a couple of days, but nevertheless, happy Halloween. And first up, we've got an interview with Jeff the Pinball Pimp. You may have seen him in his uh, little virtual presentation at the uh, Chicago Expo. Uh, so let's get right into the interview. You know, it's, it's uh, October, and it's sort of the, the time for the dead to be resurrected and to come back. And so we're talking pinball restoration. And, uh, you know, who better to speak on the matter than someone who does a ton of high-end restorations? So here we go. Jeff, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So some of the questions that I have uh, are, you know, explain to me, well, actually, before we go into questions, let me just get a brief history on you to tell you the truth, because my listeners may not be familiar with the pinball pimp himself. And so how did you get started in restoration? Well, it kind of starts back from when I was a kid. Um, I'm 54. So in the 70s, I was eight, nine, you know, 10 years old. And on Saturday mornings, we always used to drive into like the Danner's Five and Dime with the little trolley stop connected cafeteria. 
And every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, I had my hand out to my mom for quarters because they had machines in the front windows of the Danners, like a kind of like a Woolworth, you know, or a TG&Y. But uh, anyway, I, I was I was addicted to pinball when I was a kid. I couldn't wait every week to go play one. And being an artist, I was always just fascinated by the artwork and just all the mechanical moving parts and everything. I guess kind of like a modern-day iPad or an Xbox would be to a kid. That's kind of what that was to me back then. But that's kind of what got me started. When I'd run out of pinball quarters, I'd go right back to the model kits. And I was a very, very, like, big into detailed model kits when I was a kid. I'm originally from Indiana, so there was two feet of snow on the ground half the year back then. So I was bored, and I had to find something to do. So that's where I put a lot of my time. So okay, cool. that's where I got started in pinball. That's cool. Yeah, I used to uh, uh, paint. I, you know, I would play like miniature board games and I would, I got into painting little miniature parts, which has oh, translated right. over into um, some of the more nuanced painting that has to be done on the play field before you clear coat it, you know, touch ups and things right. like that. I've gotten pretty handy with a brush. So that stuff has served me well in, uh, in the future. Right. Well, and my grandfather, too, was a master cabinet maker at a big furniture company. So he had all the high-end tools in his basements. Even when I was in my teens, I was always down in his basement building stuff, and he was teaching me the tool of the trade. So that's why, you know, when it comes to restoring these cabinets, I have the woodworking experience, and some of that kind of comes easy to me. It's just a lot of, you know, long time ago lessons and things you learned I just bring it in today's standard and go, wow, to restore a pinball machine, that's really nothing for me because I've already done a lot of this kind of stuff in my life, you know, at a much earlier age. So, You know, and you bring up a good point there where, you know, when I first started getting into pinball, I was already uh, well into, like, arcade machines and rebuilding those things. And I, I think... You know, when a lot of people think about getting into the hobby of pinball and or arcade ownership, a lot of their concern is, can I handle, you know, the electrical side of things, you know? Right. Uh, but I don't think they realize that when it comes to restoring one of these machines, whether it be arcade and or pinball, and especially pinball, is it takes carpentry skills, it takes electronic skills, you know, you got to know how to use a soldering iron and you got to be able to solder well. You know, uh, being able brain, to read schematics your brain has and to understand mechanics and how things work. You know, yeah. to begin with. Too. Right, yeah, no, there's right. a lot that goes into it, and so I think, you know, when you when you see these guys that are, you know, sort of professional restorative uh, people who do the pinball projects, I mean, it's like there's a lot that goes into it. It's not something that I, I think I think people take it for granted. It's like, okay, yeah, you right, know, you just right. restore things, but there's a lot that, that well, goes into it. Ask me over the years too. They say like, "Man, how do you get your restorations to look so nice?" I said, "Well, I was kind of born into an art family. I used to pinstripe cars back when I was in high school by hand. I just have that talent, and I'm using it for something in the form of a pinball machine. I'm not wasting that talent. So I was a graphic designer my whole career. For the I designed for the NFL, Samsung corporate celebrity events, all that stuff. So pinball." was just a hobby. I started that back in 2005 and because I wanted to start restoring some stuff. And, the, you know, the hobby hadn't even blown up yet back then. So um, I, it, I just started, you know, I, I put all my effort. It was something to do. I had a house. I, I had room now. I could have some pinball machines and just kind of started as a hobby on the side. No idea that it would completely blow up to, into a stencil business and high-end restorations for, 
you know, multimillionaires around the country and around the world. So never, never would have, never would have guessed it in a million years, you know? So, you know, and since you, you know, brought up like high end restoration and, you know, we were talking about just, I mean, the skill set that's required for just sort of a general restorative process if somebody right. was going to be doing it in their garage. You know, explain to me your thoughts on the different tiers of restoration. Uh, for example, folks in the hobby say, you know, that they need to shop a pin. You know, so what's the difference between saying a shop, shopping a pin, you know, versus oh, a right, restoration? Right. Well, I, shopping a pin is used very loosely, I think. I paint it with a broad brush. Same with restoring, but... In my terms, shopping a pinball and restoring a pinball is different between black and white. And there's a lot of gray area in between. So, and, you know, people put out there, they spend an hour or two wiping down a play field and putting on a few rubbers, and then they say the machine's been restored. Well, no, it's actually been shopped. Restoring, to me, is a completely different, you know, <laughs> whole, set, whole set of, like, skills. So, um to me, you know, when I re restore a machine, that's like bringing it back to all its glory. This means redoing an entire play field with all new parts, touch-up, clear coating, or even you know, most of the times doing a play field swap. Uh, the cabinet gets completely stripped down and repainted with a set of my beautiful stencils. Sometimes a new back glass gets installed along with all new electronics. All the rusted metal gets polished or nickel-plated along with new legs or if you're going to send out for powder coating. Um, all the mechanisms get completely disassembled down to the screw. I give them a bath and a bucket of evaporust. After they soak, it's all run through a huge tumbler and the parts come out like jewelry. And then it's time to screw everything back together. And to do some of these restorations, I'm a hundred to 120 hours when you go down to the screw with these things. So it's a lot of work. No, yeah, I can certainly respect the the amount of work that goes into it. Uh, you know, I bought a creature from the Black Lagoon a few years ago, and it was in a pretty bad shape. And the so when I get into like a new hobby, uh, and I did the same thing with my arcade collection. But my first sort of idea is like, okay, let me tear this thing down to the nuts and bolts and see how it works, and then kind of learn, you know, as I'm rebuilding and restoring uh, the machine to kind of you know, learn more. So by the time I come at, out the end process, you know, it's like, okay, you know, I've already, I've rebuilt flippers. I've, you know, put in new coils, you know, figured out how lamp matrix works and, you know, all that kind of jazz. And then, so when it comes time where I've got a problem with another pin, you know, I'm like, okay, yeah, I've already done the whole thing. So now I can kind of figure out the, the little bit. So for me, it's always, you know, pick the worst, most complicated, most difficult, right. if you long handle that, you handle anything, right? Anything, yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, that's kind of how I started. Well, the first one I ever did was a Captain Fantastic. That's what got me into it. But that's an EM, and it had the board in the bottom with all the relays, which were ridiculous. And I mean, I took every one of those mechanisms apart. And this, this is was just one for myself. It, there, I was on no timeline. I didn't care. It took me over a year to do it. But if you look inside the cabinet, it's it's like a museum masterpiece inside the part that nobody sees. But that's how I've approached everything in life, being a graphic guy and such a detail-oriented person. But, yes, when you dive that deep and you learn along the way how mechanisms work and, and try to understand, it's, all, it's a 200-step it's process. It's, you can't look at it as one big machine. You've got to look at it at a thousand parts. Like my mom always, you, know, you said, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? I mean, that's kind of what these things are. 
So you have to start in a section or, you know, you, you work on part of it at a time. You don't just start tearing every single screw off. Oh, I'll remember where those two screws went. That's no big deal. And then, well, let me just take another part off. And then you take three more screws off and then a post comes off and there's five different sizes, heights of posts, you know, and, and before you get going, you're on some roll because you're enjoying yourself. And now you got half the play field stripped down. You're like, uh Oh, now, wait a minute. <laughs> Those first parts, I'm not really sure where. So the iPad saves you for that because you can take a lot of pictures along the way. Uh, you know, but I, I didn't have a lot of that when I started out. It was a digital camera, take photos, run it up, run it out on a laser printer, bring it back down to the shop. And, <laughs> you know, that was the old way of doing things back then. But, yes, the, the deeper you dive and the more you learn – the second one's going to be twice as fast. And then everything after that, you just hone in on the details because you figured out all the, you know, the major parts. So. Roger that. Yeah, no, I've, I've learned from several mistakes that I've made just with this one. Right, right. <laughs> that uh, I, I know for the next time not to do that again. So, you know, when you're looking for a restorative candidate or a candidate to restore, uh, what's the criteria? I mean, you know, on a long enough timeline and with enough money, there's enough time to, to save every pin. Right. I mean, where's that line? I mean, when is a pin too far gone to bring right. back? Well, uh, you know, just obviously just about any machine can be bought back, but the problem is finding replacement or reproduction parts in order to get it to that restored level that you desire. Um, parts are easier to find these days than they were 10 or 15 years ago when I started out. I usually look for a donor machine that had a very nice play field in the back glass. These, you know, these days, most of the top title games, like the Valley Classics, uh, you can get brand-new play fields, back glasses, plastic sets, and everything else needed due to a top-notch restoration. But, you know, that's, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the case back 15 years ago. So it was really tough finding parts. You'd have to buy a compl- another whole other second machine sometimes to get parts off of one to Frankenstein to get a really nice one. Because once you start restoring these things, you start seeing the difference between 45 years old and zero days old. And that's when, you know, the color shift in plastics and things like that. And, you know, it's like, well, that sticks out like a sore thumb. I wish I had a new plastic set. And thank God CPR came along. I, I started out as one of the original artists just to, get parts from them back in the day because I wanted my machines to look that good. And a lot of people didn't have machines that looked that good back then. And they, they wondered how they looked that good. And it's like, well, that was three machines put into one to get it to look that good. So. Do you think that the, you know, I, it's, it's interesting because I would think most people would have the opinion that it was easier to find parts back in the day because there was you know a, more pins on location more pins available and possibly more parts available as manufacturers from several different uh manufacturers were actually producing parts pins and so forth and so on but i'm wondering if maybe perhaps it was because the communication wasn't necessarily there you know along comes the internet and forums and things like that and people can trade parts a little bit easier because it's not like there was an auto trader for pinball you know where people necessarily could hook up together if they had a, a certain machine, you know, you were really out there hustling, trying to just find the groups that you were within 
in order to uh, oh, right. to find donor and, parts and, and machines. And a lot of it was, I mean, I bought my Captain Fantastic off eBay. It had a new old stock playfield in it. It said NOS playfield. I didn't even know what that meant back then. And I think I ended up winning the auction over like 16 other bidders, and it was still, I paid 1450 or 1500 back in 05. That would have been a lot of money back then for a pinball because I remember buying Evil Knievels and Kisses and machines like that for four, five, six hundred $600 back in 05. I mean, people couldn't even give some of that stuff away. And now you go look at some of these, the same machine, and Evil Knievel's 2000 to 2500 just for a donor machine. And the play field is probably going to be blown out. It's not going to be a, you know, like a brand-new CPR. So, but that's what you need to bring these things back to better than the day they were, you know, came off the assembly line. That's true. That's true. It's not, you know, I, I mean, I know like just in my creature restoration, just trying to find little pieces and parts are, are, uh, are tough. Um, but you know, they, yeah, I mean, I can, I can see where like having a donor machine makes a hell of a lot of sense, especially if you're doing a high end restoration just because you have access to a plethora of parts that you can kind of swap right. out. And yeah. back then, you didn't see somebody just like, like I've bought machines before just to get a back glass, and it had an apron. You know, you get some of these aprons that when they weren't making the decals back then or whatever, you have a scratched-up apron right down through the screen-printed artwork. You can touch it up, but you can still see the touch-up. So, you know, it was like, man, I need a perfect apron. Who's got one? And, you know, nowadays... You know, like I said, they make just about everything reproduction, and it's 10 times easier now to restore a machine than it was back then, and it took much longer back then because you had to wait around to find parts. So that's what was frustrating about it was, you know, just the wait time. I remember there's, there's machines where, you know, CPR said they were going to put a playfield out, and I waited three or four years before the playfield came. So that machine sat, you know, taking up space for that long before I could even get to it. So, yeah, that could be frustrating. I, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. So, in most cases, I imagine you you know you try, or at least back then, you know, you'll try to get a donor machine that you can uh, cannibalize, and uh, and then of course you know you've got a plethora of folks doing reproduction parts. So I realize the difference it differs from machine to machine, but in general, you know, what's your process for pinball restoration? Well. My approach to restoring a machine uh, with all its many parts is fairly simple to me. I just look at it as a huge model kit with a full instruction sheet containing hundreds of parts. Um, step one is to break down the machine completely, which involves removing playfield, back glass, coin door, legs, electronics. And then I usually go and source all the parts needed for the restoration and get them ordered. Sometimes I have to go to four or five different places to find the parts, and you still might find something that's out of stock. So, um, but once that's done, then step two is I usually tackle the cabinet first. I like doing it, um, uh, right off the bat. That way it gives the paint time to cure while I move on to the play field. So, um, now cabinets are one of my specialties. This is how my stencil business got started. Um, I always got <clears throat> down my cabinets to the wood. Then I do a chemical paint strip down to the veneer. And then you're basically doing auto body. Um, I always reinforce my cabinets at the seams with carpenter's glue, remanufacture any new pieces of wood that need uh, to be done to make the appearance of the cabinet look better. Then everything gets sanded down, multiple rounds of Bondo or any good filler. 
uh, multiple rounds of primer with a good cabinet skim in between coats to fill in the, the tiny wood grain in order to get the cabinet baby smooth. And then and only then are you ready for base coat. Um, multiple rounds of base coat, sanding in between. Uh, then comes my beautiful pinball pimp stencils, unless you're doing a decal job on a WPC cabinet. But that's basically the same. You're stripping it down, getting the decals and the glue off, which is a pain. I usually give them either a blue or a black or whatever, you know, Williams Valley used back then to give it, you know, a nice shiny surface for the decals to stick nice. With my stencils, that's, you know, that's where it gives it the identity with the two colors. So that's, that's pretty much the cabinet. That's a lot of work, though. I mean, my cabinet's stripping them down and getting them back up with hardware put back on. I'm at least 40 hours on something like that. Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, that sounds like a, a ton of work. The, you know, in just a quick interjection here was, uh, I think it's pretty common. I, you know, I mean, Bondo is pretty common to be used on whether it's arcade machines or whether it's uh, pinball, uh, or any other type of wood filler to get everything done. But I know like when I was doing my creature for, from the black lagoon, for example, you know, the corners were pretty gashed up and sometimes it was really kind of a pain in, in the ass to try to get you know, a nice, good corner just with Bondo. I mean, I eventually got it, but it took a long time, and I was kind of concerned about how well, you know, it would uh, it would hold. And then I saw on YouTube somebody was using fiberglass to do it. Have you ever used anything like that yeah, for yeah, corners? Yeah, like the fiberglass resin, right. It seems, it seems to bond better, and it gives you better corners, so you don't accidentally, you know, you rake across it later, and it ends up chipping the, you know, the Bondo breaks away from the wood. So, yeah, there are some new new fillers these days that, you know, weren't around maybe 10 or 15 years ago, all this, all the new stuff. But it, it just depends on kind of where the where you need to fill on the cabinet. Like I said, corners are important. You know, three inches up the backside by the leg where there's a little gouge, Bondo is going to be absolutely fine there. So it just, like I said, it kind of depends. But, yeah, they've got a lot of new, like like, wood type fillers and stuff that are some, you know, polymer blend. <laughs> it's way better. Well, I don't actually use Bondo on mine. I use a, it, it's, it's the green stuff that you see them use on the, on the TV shows for the car shows. It's called Evercoat Rage. It's about 60 or $70 a gallon over the $20 a gallon Bondo. It's got a, it has an additive in it called Hatonite, which when you sand it, you don't, it doesn't leave any pinhole air bubbles. So you get a real, real nice uh, sand right off of the, the filler. So oh, that's, that's awesome. what I've So now that you've got the cabinet, you know, in pristine shape, you know, what's, what's next? What's the next step? I'll then move on to the play field. And like I said, there's all kinds of alternatives. You know, you can always match paints and touch up the tops, which a lot of people have to do because they don't have a play field to swap it with. Um, I had to do that a lot of times back in the day. What I found, though, for myself was to get them to look the way I want, it's just easier to buy a brand-new play field and do a swap than it is to try to touch everything up and clear coat it if you have the option because, to me, it's almost less work, and you know, there's nothing better than new. So, but anyway, uh, as far as a playfield goes, um, uh, that playfield swaps are by far the most time-consuming and daunting task. Not to mention expensive. I usually have around fifteen hundred in parts alone 
including the new play field, plastic set, all the new posts, pop bumpers, flippers, and that's on a classic. If you're talking a WPC game with ramps, you could have 500, 700 in ramps alone and things like that. So it could get even more expensive. Um, but, you know, I strip my play fields down to the bone, top and bottom. All the underneath hardware mechanisms get completely disassembled. Rust dip polished, like I'd mentioned before. Uh, wiring harness is fully cleaned. All new light sockets are installed. The mechs go back in and all the soldering begins, which that's a task in itself. Yeah, you know, like marking, flagging little, you know, wires of what goes where. So when you put all these back that all your lights are in the right order. <laughs> but uh, then the top of the play field is basically the same. Install new posts, then targets, rebuild the pop bumpers, install new rubber, you know, apron, down to the small details. So, and, you know, once the cabinet's cured, new side rails get installed along with any other trim, play field's dropped in. Uh, all new electronics, and re I usually put all new reproduction factory cards that I staple in just so it stays very, like, authentic and OEM, and bolt on the legs, and then it's ready for a test game. And you cross your fingers that the whole thing works, and I've usually been 100% on most things. Maybe a light socket's bad out of the box or something, but I've never had any, oh, it's all blowing up and <laughs> there's smoke everywhere. <laughs> So, right. <laughs> the, uh, had some wires crossed, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> With um, the, you know, it's funny, too, because, you know, you were talking about doing a playfield swap. <clears throat> and I've got a Bram Stoker's Dracula that I bought. And that game was sort of notoriously known for uh, planking. It's one of the few that that just had a lot of uh, planking issues. And mine was certainly, it's certainly that way. And <clears throat> I was looking at, you know, maybe having a buddy of mine do some clear coating on it. Uh, but even then, I, that that may or may not solve the planking issue. And there are folks that make reproduction playfields for it. And so I was like, okay, you know, I'll do a playfield swap. But I wasn't, I knew it was going to be kind of like, okay, it was kind of a daunting task again. Although I'm more better prepared now than I was when I started my, you know, restoration of the creature. But the... um once, if if you decide to go with a playfield swap, I mean, is it worth saying like, okay, I've gone this far. Why not just push a little further and and kind of redo the the rest you of mean it? As far you as think using a new playfield swap, or well, I mean, once you do the playfield swap, you know, you you got everything out. I mean, do you think it's worth it being like, okay, well, let's just finish up the cabinet so it doesn't have like, you know, kind of like a faded out. Oh, stand, you know, yeah. side uh, art or whatever, and then you've got like this brand spanking new place. Well, yeah, that's the, what I was saying, especially it, with know. these older machines. Like I said, you you get there. There's guys that like swap a brand new playfield, and then they say restore, and I'm looking at it going, but you didn't paint the cabinet. So now you got this carved up, scratched up 1977 cabinet with this brand new playfield that nothing matches. So you can see two different eras in one machine. So to me. My grandfather always told me when I was a kid, and he beat this in my brain when I was doing woodworking, when he was trying to teach me how to do things right. I'd run a screw in three degrees crooked. He'd make me pull it out and, and run it in straight. It's like, why? You know, he always told me, he said, be your task large or small, do it right or not at all. When a task has once begun, never leave it till it's done. And yeah, 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 Grandpa. Well, you can see that in my machines now. I was being taught. I just didn't know I was being taught. So I've kind of lived by that, 
and everything I do is in detail. So if I'm going to go through the trouble of ripping this pin down and restoring it, I'm doing the whole thing. I've seen so many guys go through these restoration processes, and you look at it and you're going, dude, you were 99.5% there, but you failed to like do this one stupid little thing that would have cost 10 bucks, but it sticks out like, like a sore thumb. It's like you almost had it, but a swing and a miss. You know? So right. <laughs> why didn't you, or, or I used to get, this is the clients I used to get. They want me to paint a beautiful brand new paint job on a cabinet. And then they're too cheap to spend $99 for me to put two new side rails on. And I'm going, uh, you want me to sand down and, and beat out some dents on old original scratched ones to put on this brand new cabinet paint? Or, or they didn't want to spend the money because, you know, to put a new coin door skin on. And there's had a couple dents in it. It's like, that's like the front of your car. You walk up, that's the first thing you see. Your eye sees dents. Your eye sees crooked and, and not smooth curves in artwork, you know? It's like, that's what your eyeball sees. Not, I always tell people with stencils, it's like, you're not paying for my stencils. You're paying for the artwork. Because you could be the best painter in the world. But when you walk up to a cabinet, your eye sees the artwork, and it doesn't see the quality of the paint quite yet. It's going to see anomalies in the artwork, just like a crooked pinstripe on a car. So that's why that has to be right. And I used to get a lot of calls back in the day, people like, how do you get your cabinets to look so good? I'm like, it's all in the precision artwork. So, You know, and speaking of, you know, sort of, precision artwork or whether it be, you know, hammering out dents. I mean, when it comes to, you know, restoring a pin, what are some of the common roadblocks that you always find? I mean, I imagine parts are, you know, part of it. Uh, but I mean, you know, whether it be, I'm kind of thinking of a pinball machine since we've been talking about cars, kind of like a, a car, you know, where you've got different systems within the same uh, medium, you know, so you've right. got electrical, you've got woodworking and you've got so forth and so on. And, uh, so, you know, what, what are the biggest hurdles? Well, like I said, I think most, I think most of it is just trying to uh, not being able to source the parts to complete the restoration. Like I said, when I started back in 2005, pinball wasn't even on the map, and the hobby hadn't blown up yet, and it was tough to find parts, you know, anything that was new. Um, like I said, usually you had to find a donor machine to get nicer parts off of. Even uh, play fields back then required, you know, custom mixing and touching up like we talked about. And that was the reason that I got involved with uh, CPR back in the day, Classic Playfield Reproductions, to help them design artwork and acquire new playfields and plastics for my restorations. I remember, I mean, this was just a hobby. And I remember playfields back then were still like $599, like $600 and a plastic set $150. And I'm going $750 and then new Cyril. I'm thinking I'm going to have $1,200 in this machine and parts and only paid 400 for the whole machine. And there's no market for me to resell this as a high-end restoration because nobody cares. So I was really just doing them for myself. Um, but I said, you know, with CPR, I didn't get paid in cash. It was all for store credit, which got me all the free play fields and, you know, stuff like that when it was just a hobby. So that's how I was able to kind of, get a little bit ahead of the game and, you know, everybody, well, how do you get them to look so nice? Well, I got a brand new play field there. Well, how do you, how do you, how'd you get a new play field? Well, you swap it. Well, how do you swap it? Well, I don't know. I just learned because I have a brain that loves doing this kind of stuff. So you just do it. But so, 
But that's, that, I mean, like I said, most of the hurdles are just finding all the parts to make it look to your level, you know? So, Right. You know, have you ever had to recreate a part that you couldn't find either new old stock or somebody who did an aftermarket Oh, yeah. I mean, over the years, I've, all, I've had to make plenty of parts out of plastic, wood, and metal. Uh, you know, cabinets, I've gotten cabinets in where the whole neck of the cabinet's broken off, so I have to bust out the table saw, bandsaw, routers, and just completely rebuild a whole new part. Um, I mean, I've bent plenty of brackets and wire forms and things over the years where, you know, little pieces weren't available, little gate, the little wires that on gate so the ball doesn't come back, you know, bending those little things. So those things are never available. Um, I've had to do new plastics pieces before, you know, did the artwork and sent it off or had somebody do a reverse clear print decal and laser cut it. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, when there's not a part to be made, well, and that's where the, that's where my art skills come in into play is I can pretty much recreate any part or any plastic piece or something artwork wise. That's, that's like me writing my name. So that's where I have a little bit of advantage. If there's no part needed, I just go design it or design the artwork, especially on plastic sets and things like that. Um, you know, have it done. I have quite a few decal mods for WPC machines, like Twilight Zone and some others that I've got out on eBay that I've been selling for five years, and they still sell like hotcakes to cover up some of these ugly metal, you know, diverters and brackets and things like that. So just like I said, decal mods. So like I said, a lot of that kind of stuff I'm used to doing already. So, you know, when it comes to making a part, it's like, oh, well, they don't make it. I guess I'll go try. And then you've got, everybody's got a 3D printer now. Well, not everybody, but knows somebody that's got one. So, you know, you get a lot of mods being made by guys with 3D printers or a gear that nobody makes anymore. You know, so it's, it's, things have changed in 15 years. That's for sure. Yeah, no, that certainly is, you know, a pretty, uh, Excellent advantage, you know, with the, with the art background that you have and then just being able to digitally recreate the artwork and have it printed. You know, and I was bringing this question up because I, when I first got into uh, pinball, I decided that I wanted to do, uh, you know, restoration. I was reading everything that I could on it and then I ended up ordering the uh, this old pinball, the old podcast, uh, had a bunch of uh, DVDs that they sell. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, got I remember going seeing through some the of machines. back in the day, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they were talking about, and a lot of their stuff, I, I think it was, mainly they were talking about repairing, they weren't really doing like full-on high-end restorations, but a lot of what right, they were doing was... More repairs. Was more repairs, yeah, and it was, you know, just, because they were doing it for the pinball, mu- or a pinball museum, and so a lot of it was just getting a candidate, making it look as nice as they could with a quick time allotted, and then getting it out to be played, and there was a, an episode where they were redoing a Indiana Jones, and one of the playfield plastics that had some leaves uh, or something on it was uh, was pretty well, pretty faded, and so what they ended up doing was getting a picture off of the internet of that and then printing that like on photo paper and then gluing it to like a handmade uh, plastic, just a clear plastic piece. And, you know, it, it worked. And I was like, okay, you know, that was pretty slick, you know, and, and certainly within the realm of somebody in the, the home market, if you couldn't, you know, like a garage warrior, basically, if you couldn't find a new old stock part, luckily, as you said, you know, there are so many, there, I mean, there aren't 
there isn't much out there that you can't find. No, I mean, I mean the, the guy down the guy down here that prints the big commercial print shop that does my decal mods where they print everything and then it's contour cut, you know, and all that precision to my cut line. I, I they they have the ability to directly print reverse to plastic or pet G now. So obviously they do it in reverse. They would print the black first and then they would build the colors and then the white would be last. But, you know, with like I said, these guys are running million dollar printers and stuff that can do that. So you obviously you're not going to be able to do it at home as a hobby, but there's you know, a lot of these bigger print companies do have services where if you need something like that, here's a sheet, here's my artwork, they'll print it, they'll, they'll cut it out and you know, you pay them. So at least it's there. It might be kind of expensive, but if you need a piece made, at least the opportunity to have it made is there. So when I do a high end restoration, I mean, there's times where I've paid $700 for an original nice used back glass just because you have to have that for the restoration. So some guys might not want to put that kind of money into something or having, oh, that one piece of plastic cost me $200 to have made. Well, if you didn't make it, the machine wouldn't be complete. So it, it, right. a lot of these restorations, like you said, if money's no object, well, yeah, and, and that's where you kind of got to draw the line. If I'm doing a restoration for some millionaire, they don't care if it's a $10,000 machine or an $11,000 machine. You know, that extra $1,000 to do it right is nothing to those guys. I had a client in Jacksonville that was worth $300 million. So I don't really think he cares when it comes to that. But, but most people don't, aren't doing things for people where they have an unlimited budget. It's probably for themselves, and they're not, <laughs> there's no way they're going to sink that kind of money into a machine. So... No, I, I totally, I, I get, I get that, you know, and it was, that was sort of the first line of thought that I had when I was, cons- whenever I was still considering whether I was going to restore this creature or not. And, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I paid X for the pin, you know, market value is X, you know, here's where I need to stay in if I, you know, ever decide to sell it and I just want to break even. You don't go underwater, and, right? I got a thousand dollars in mods and another $500 topper and... Yeah. <laughs> you know, for me, though, you know, and it's like, I, I don't know, it's maybe it's just an addiction or something. But whenever I and this is with any of the any of the stuff that I have, I always mod the hell out of them and, you know, make it, uh, you know, just as gorgeous as I possibly can with the skill set that I have. Right. And so, I, you know, it doesn't bother me. I'm sure I'll, I'll go over budget on on uh, both Creature and Dracula. Uh, but it's, you know, I don't know. There's some pride in there too, you know, to just try to make the nicest possible thing that you can, you know, given the, the, the situation that you have well, and the skill set that you have. This is how I look at the whole, the whole pinball, uh, collector guy and the guy that restores and all this. I mean, it's, it's basically the same as the classic car collector guys. I mean, you want to have a machine that when your friends come over and see it, their jaws on the ground or they're just like, dude, what is that? You know? And that's when you take the pride. If you did the restoration work, you get to sit there and go, yeah, man, I did that. They're like, no way. There's no way you did that. You made that. Yeah, man, I made that, you know? So that's where the pride comes in. And that's the nice thing is, is I, I like mods. I like it when they're done tastefully. I know when they can be done overkill where there's so many mods, you can't even see the ball in the play field anymore. <laughs> so, but, right. <laughs> but, you know, everybody to their own. You can put as many stickers and decals on your car and lights and everything else. So it just, 
you know, you can make it your own machine. Like with the powder coating and stuff these days, you know, you can get a completely different looking white water if you put blue side rails on or legs or bright yellow or, or metallic blue, you know. So everybody's got their own their own niche, and this is the way I like it. So, Right. No, absolutely. You know, and I, I will say, you know, as we finish up our conversation on restoration, for anybody who's out there who's, you know, thinking about it or just, a, you know, debating on whether or not to, to do this for themselves, what is, you know, like a few tips you might have to say, okay, you know, you can do this and here are some things to just kind of pay attention to along and, the way. I mean, if you don't know, if you don't know much about electronics and that scares you and things like that, you know, there's, there's enough guys around, I think, where you can get like electronic repair and things. You Obviously, you can buy a lot of new boards for, for everything now, but I'm kind of speaking more for the, for the classics. I don't suggest that your first restoration and teardown is a twilight zone with a playfield swap. You probably should start with some, you know, classic Bally with just a flat playfield that's, that's got the basic parts, maybe a target unit, some stand-up targets and some pop bumpers and some flipper mechs. Um, if you were going to do a playfield swap, but you know, cabinet stencils and things, I mean, my stencils are the easiest stencils to use. They're not nearly as hard as I think what people make them out to be. A lot of people get scared like, Oh, how would I paint a cabinet and all that? Well, it's kind of like sanding down an end table or a piece of furniture and staining it. You know, it's in a way it's the same process. So I don't know. I guess you just have to, you know, like uh, figure out what your skill level is. And, and don't get over, you know, in too deep and over your head or just think about everything before you get too involved or too deep to where you can't get back out. <laughs> you know, oh, right. No, no, no. That, that's, that's a good, that's a good point because, you know, you, and, and in fact, you see those, you, you know, they'll come up on pin side sometimes and you'll see them in uh, arcade forums where somebody's like, Hey, started to do a restoration and, uh, you know, I just want this thing right, to be gone. Apart, you know, the play field, the top of the play field is in a box of parts here. Like, like, I'm, yeah. Yeah. Like I was saying, if you're going to start out and you think you might want to get into some pinball, you like the whole hobby of just restoring these things and bringing it back. You know, it doesn't have to be a top title game, you know, for your first restoration, go buy one of these cheap C title games. You can pick up for four or 500 bucks and just go and just go have fun with it. Because then if it doesn't turn out so great or your paint gets a little wrinkle in it and you don't care, it's not one of these high end games that you wish, Oh, I wish this would have looked nicer, you know, or something. And you don't have all this money sunk into it. So I don't, I don't, no, that's a good point. I don't suggest your first pinball being a gut it down to the screw and do a play field swap. You probably just need to buy one, tinker with it, work on it, change the rubbers out, get familiar with the machine first, and then maybe say, well, now I think I might just want to tear this thing apart and make it look better. So, no, no, I, I agree. That's, that's a good, that's a good the idea. The first one's always the hardest, man. It's like once you've, once you've figured out the steps, like, like with a play field, you know, you put the light sockets in and the ground braid down, and then you've got to solder all those. And then next comes all the mechanisms. And then next comes, you know, flipping over, maybe rebuilding the pop bumpers. And then the wiring harness gets soldered in, and you flip it over and start rebuilding the top. So, you know, it's a 50-step it's a process for a play field, and it's not hard. It's just very time-consuming. But if you do it one step at a time, it's not hard. Like I said, you just can't look at it as one big project like oh my god look at all those screws and look at everything it's like well a lot of those screws a lot of those nuts and bolts are the same size 
they all kind of fit certain parts. So you're not going to get that lost. Like, oh, my God, I don't know where any of this goes anymore. So you just have to, you know, a little patience, I guess, and a lot of pictures along the way. No, that's that's a good point. Like, I, I would say the same thing. Take a lot of pictures. Take your time. You know, and then don't be afraid to ask questions to to guys. I mean, most of the folks are, you know, some of them anyway, are pretty uh, pretty forgiving when it comes to you know just having some basic questions. And of course, nowadays there's plenty of resources that that you're able to uh, to look at, to read, and then see you know and what I get a uh, lot solutions of calls, are available. You know, on a daily basis from guys that hey, I just ordered a stencil kit from you. I just had a couple questions, and I take the time to answer. You know, I like I like communicating over the phone. A lot of people don't do that anymore, but um, you know, it's like I, I kind of tell them do this, don't do that. You know, use this, wait that much time, and you know, they're always thankful for it. So, yeah, there's you can't get enough information. That's for sure. Ain't that the truth? Well, Jeff, uh, you know it's been a pleasure talking with you, man, and I, I appreciate you for for coming on and talking about the restorative process. It's been absolutely, a wealth of, man. I of love excellent doing it. information. Yeah, keeping the so, hobby alive. Cool. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you want to see more of Jeff's work and even buy some of his stencils, uh, you can check him out at thepinballpimp.com. Furthermore, happy anniversary to us, and I appreciate everybody out there who stuck with us for the entire year. And for those that haven't, welcome aboard. <clears throat> Lots of exciting new things happening uh, next year. Hopefully, we can get back to one day uh, going back to conventions and we can meet each other in person. Other than that, uh, stay tuned. Here in the next few weeks, there'll be another episode uh, of This American Pinball, and I'm going to take a very deep dive into what a horror-themed pin should look like and what sort of franchises uh, should be used. So, if you're interested in horror and pinball culminating together, be sure to take a listen to that episode. Until then, we'll see you next time. This is Josh, saying goodbye.